Peace be upon you. So the question today is, what is the minimum requirement to make it into God's kingdom? And the answer can be found when you first open the uh, the Quran, assuming you have the uh, translation by Dr. Rashad Khalifa. Uh, before it even gets to the uh, preface or the introduction, uh, you read the following verse. It's from uh, chapter 2, verse 62, or uh, 569. It reads, Surely those who believe, those who are Jewish, the Christians, the converts, anyone who, one, believes in God, two, believes in the last day, and three, leads a righteous life, will receive their recompense from their Lord. They have nothing to fear, nor will they grieve. So we're seeing from this verse that the minimum requirement to uh, uh, be considered a submitter uh, for uh, salvation uh, back to God is to one, believe in God, two, believe in the last day, and three, lead a righteous life. You realize it doesn't say anything in regards to being considered Jewish, Christian, Muslim, uh, Zoroastrian. It's all irrelevant. In the introduction to the Quran, we read the following. While every religion has been corrupted by innovations, traditions, and false idolatrous doctrines, there may be submitters within every religion. There may be submitters who are Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, or anything else. These submitters collectively constitute the only religion acceptable to God. As emphasized by the theme of the front page of this book, all submitters who are devoted to God alone and do not set up any idols beside God are redeemed into God's eternal kingdom. Uh, Surah 2 verse 62 is a criterion of the true submitters that they will find nothing objectionable in the Quran. So we're seeing here that anyone, irrespective of the name of their faith, can be considered a submitter. Because a submitter is a description of what we do. We submit to the will of God. It continues on in the introduction uh, in the titles, All Believers Constitute One Acceptable Religion. It reads, As expected from the Creator's final message, one of the prominent themes in the Quran is the call for unity among all believers and the repeated prohibition of making any distinction among God's messengers. If the object of worship is one and the same, there will be absolute unity among all believers. It is the human factors, for example, devotion and prejudice to such powerless humans as Jesus, Muhammad, and the saints that cause division, hatred, bitter wars among the misguided believers. A guided believer is devoted to God alone and rejoices in seeing any other believer who is devoted to God alone, regardless of the name of such a believer calls his or her religion. And again, 262, 569, read, Surely those who believe, those who are Jewish, the Christians, and the converts, anyone who, one, believes in God, two, believes in the last day, and three, leads a righteous life, will receive their recompense from their Lord. They have nothing to fear, nor will they grieve. So this is the uh, minimum requirement for attaining God's salvation. What's interesting is in this requirement, you don't hear anything about believing in Muhammad, believing in Jesus, even believing in the Quran, yet alone Salat, Zakat, uh, any of the uh, the pillars of the uh, the religion. Now, does this mean that we don't have to do our salat? We don't have to give our zakat. All we need to do is just meet these three requirements. What I'm going to argue is the fact that these minimum requirements it's going to vary based on the individual. And I'll give you a parallel. We know zakat is two and a half percent of our income, and it's unanimous across every single individual. They're going to pay two and a half percent if they want to meet the criteria for zakat. Now, that 2.5% for one individual might be different than another because it's based on how much income we make. So someone like Bill Gates, their 2.5% is going to be much higher than me or anyone else. Um, and uh, subjectively, it's, it varies from individual to individual. Each person will meet that minimum requirement and uh, be able to uh, give their zakat. But what 2.5% means to one individual versus another is going to vary based on how much income they make. And I feel like the minimum requirement that's mentioned in 262 and 569 
is commensurate to the amount of knowledge we have, the uh, responsibility we have, the means we have, uh, our upbringing, our intellect. All these things become into factor of what it means to fulfill those three requirements, believe in God, believe in the last day, and lead a righteous life. You know, God holds us responsible for what we know and our circumstances. We see the example in chapter 5, verse 114, where the subtitle reads, Greater miracle brings greater responsibility. And this is at the time of Jesus. It reads, Said Jesus, the son of Mary, Our God, our Lord, send down to us a feast from the sky. Let bring plenty for each and every one of us, and a sign from you. Provide uh, for us. You are the best provider. God said, I am sending it down. Anyone among you who disbelieves after this, I will punish him as I never punished anyone else. And to give some context to this, the um, people at the time of Jesus, they were asking Jesus for a miracle. They wanted to reassure their hearts. And God is saying, okay, I will provide them a feast. But anyone who rejects this uh, miracle after witnessing, the retribution is going to be doubled for them. In uh, 514.115, the footnote reads, The Quran's overwhelming miracle, Appendix 1, is described in 7435 as one of the greatest miracles and brings with it an uncanny, uncommonly great responsibility. Now, we know that these people at the time of Jesus, they witnessed, they asked for a miracle, God provided it to them, and they're held responsible for that information. If they choose not to follow it, if after the miracle they, they revert, uh, the punishment for them is going to be uh, severe in the sense that they have more responsibility. In chapter 2, verse 211, we see the same thing in regards to the children of Israel. The subtitle reads, Miracles bring great responsibility. It says, Ask the children of Israel, how many profound miracles have we shown them? For those who disregard the blessings bestowed upon them by God, God is most strict in retribution. And the footnote again reads, The Quran's mathematical miracles a great blessing and brings with it an awesome responsibility. So, by having a miracle, by witnessing certain things, by uh, being present, uh, seeing these things, we're held responsible for it. And God holds us each responsible for what we have, meaning that someone who doesn't have the Quran, who doesn't know who Prophet Muhammad is, Prophet uh, Jesus, uh, Moses, any of this stuff, doesn't know about the angels, they're not responsible. All that they're responsible for, again, is believing in God, believing in the hereafter and leading a righteous life. And it's going to vary from individual to individual. Because as we learn more, as we study more, as God gives us more, we're, uh, we're held to a higher standard. In uh, 33.36 says, No believing man or believing woman, if God and his messenger issue any command, has any choice regarding that command. Anyone who disobeys God and his messenger has gone far astray. So the people at the time of the messenger... If they were given a command by any of God's messengers and choose not to follow it, that this, this is a sign that they don't believe, that they've gone astray. And we see a similar uh, phenomenon in uh, chapter 3, verse 81 and 82, regarding the uh, prophecy of the messenger of the covenant. It reads, God took a covenant from the prophet saying, I will give you the scripture and wisdom. Afterwards, a messenger will come to confirm all existing scriptures. You shall believe in him and support him. He said, do you agree with this and pledge to fulfill this covenant? They said, we agree. He said, you have thus borne witness and I bear witness along with you. And the subtitle of 382 reads, rejectors of God's messenger of the covenant are disbelievers. And the verse reads, those who reject this Quranic prophecy are the evil ones. Meaning that if you don't know about this prophecy, you can't reject it because you don't know. You're not responsible for it. But for the second that you become responsible, you, you know about the miracle. You know about the messenger of the covenant. Um, then you have the responsibility of upholding it. 
In uh, 4159, we read, Everyone among the people of the scripture was required to believe in him in regards to Jesus before his death. On the day of resurrection, he will be a witness against them. And this, to me, it shows that each person has a responsibility. One of the things that we see in uh, 2461, 4816, uh, 497 is that certain people have less responsibility. In 2461, it says the blind is not to be blamed, the crippled is not to be blamed, nor is the handicapped to be blamed. And in uh, 4816, it's talking about when they were asked to go and fight. Um, it says, uh, but if you turn away again as you did in the past, he will requite you with a painful retribution. The blind is not to be blamed, the crippled is not to be blamed, and the sick is not to be blamed. So there's certain people that bit responsibility for them to, you know, at the time, if they had to go to fight in a war, they were excused. They didn't have the same level of responsibility as someone who's whole and able. Uh, and again, in 497, it's about people who are living in a uh, oppressive society. Uh, God is advocating them to leave. And it says, exempted are the weak men and women and children who do not possess the strength nor the means to find a way out. So we are each responsible for what we have, the information we have, the knowledge we have, the uh, intellect that we have, the hearing, the eyesight, the mind, just like the uh, the people who die before the age of 40 or the uh, people who are uh, mentally uh, handicapped or um, uh, lacking, you know, uh, physically deformed, these people are excused. But for the rest of us, you know, we're each going to be responsible. And similarly, like you think about the uh, the Arabs who have the Quran in their native tongue. The responsibility for them is going to be higher than someone who doesn't speak Arabic. And now that we have the Quran, uh, the authorized English version, you know, the people who speak English are going to be more responsible because there's certain languages that this translation doesn't exist in um, adequately. So those people aren't going to be held to the same caliber as the rest of us. Um, each one of these things, in essence, it's it, it adjusts. Our responsibility, just like zakat, is going to be dependent. It's always two and a half percent, but it's going to be dependent on how much income you have. These other factors are going to determine what is each individual's minimum requirement. And we see that in the uh, uh, the Quran, it talks about the Christians too must obey the messenger. In uh, five fourteen, it reads, "Also from those who said we are Christian, we took their covenant, but they disregarded some of the commandments given to them." Consequently, we condemn them to animosity and hatred among themselves until the day of resurrection. God will then inform them of everything they had done. And continuing 515, it reads, O people of the scripture, our messengers has come to you to proclaim for you many things you have concealed in the scripture and to pardon many other transgressions you have committed. A beacon has come to you from God and a profound scripture. With it, God guides those who seek his approval. He guides them to the path of peace, leads them out of darkness into light by his leave, and guides them in a straight path. So it's it's giving the, the Quran is a message. Uh, in one of the verses, it says it's a message to the world, meaning that the people who obtain the Quran, that they're going to accept it. One of the criteria that we read in the introduction is that they're going to find nothing objectionable in the Quran because the Quran is the proven, authorized word of God. In uh, 565 says, if only the people of the scripture believe and lead a righteous life, we will then remit their sins and emit them into gardens of bliss. And in 566, the subtitle reads, they must believe in this Quran. If only they would uphold the Torah and the gospel and what was sent down to them herein from their Lord, they would be showered with God's uh, with blessings from above them and from beneath their feet. Some of them are righteous, many of them are evildoers. So we are each responsible for what we have. The Jew, the Christian who doesn't 
has never read the Quran, has never studied it, their responsibility for upholding it is going to be less. But they're going to be responsible for the scriptures, the knowledge that God has given to them through their uh, scriptures. And same thing with their intellect, with their means, uh, how much you know resources they have. All this, it bears on our responsibility for what that minimum requirement is. Because if we meet that minimum requirement for each individual person, we're guaranteed salvation to God. So let's look at these three requirements. The first one, just to summarize again, it's believe in God, believe in the last day, and lead a righteous life. So what does it mean to believe in God? Does it mean to just believe in his mere existence? Um, if you think about it, the devil not only believes in God, knows God exists, has, you know, sees God, has conversed with him. Um, yet, you know, we can't say that the devil believes in God. What it means to believe in God is several The one is to believe in God's qualities. And one of the qualities of God is that God is one, that there is no other God beside him. This is the first commandment. It says, say, if there were, this is uh, chapter 17, Surah 17, verse 42. It says, say, if there were any other gods beside him, as they claim, they would have tried to overthrow the possessor of the throne. And when we say that God is one, we realize God's omnipotence, omnipresence, uh, that God is most gracious, most merciful, most just, all-knowing, all-powerful. You know, the list goes on and on. And each one of these characteristics about God, these names of God, when we understand that, it can't contradict one another. If we say that there's multiple gods, then that means God can't be most gracious, because how can two gods be most gracious? One has to be higher than the other, um, and on and on. But the aspect that, okay, God is one, and what is God's characteristics? When we know who God is, then that means we believe in God. Um, in 1061, we read, the subtitle reads, Knowing God. It says, you do not get into any situation, nor do you recite any Quran, nor do you do anything without us being witnesses thereof as you do it. Not even an atom's weight is out of your Lord's control, be it in the heavens or the earth. Nor is there anything smaller than an atom or larger that is not recorded in a profound record. In uh, chapter 59, verse 22 through 24, we read, He is the one God, there is no other God beside him. Knower of all secrets and declarations. He is the most gracious, most merciful. He is the one God. There is no other God beside him. The king, the most sacred, the peace, the most faithful, the supreme, the almighty, the most powerful, most dignified. God be glorified, far above having partners. He is the one God, the creator, the initiator, the designer. To him belong the most beautiful names. Glorifying him is everything in the heavens and the earth. He is the almighty, most wise. So as we grow in our understanding to better appreciate who God is, this all constitutes believing in God. And one of the criteria is that believing God is most gracious, most merciful. And there's this misconception among most uh, traditional Muslims, Christians, Jews, that God has ordered Abraham to kill his son. And we know that this is a blasphemy. I'm going to read from Appendix 9, and the title is uh, Abraham, Original Messenger of Islam, and it reads, God never ordered Abraham to sacrifice his son. God is the most merciful. He never violates his own law, chapter 7, verse 28. Any person who believes that the most merciful ordered Abraham to kill his son cannot possibly make it to God's heaven. Such evil thought about God is grossly blasphemous. Nowhere in the Quran do we see that God ordered Abraham to kill his son. On the contrary, God intervened to save Abraham and Ishmael from Satan's plot. Uh, 37107, and he told Abraham, you believed in the dream. 37105, undoubtedly, it was a dream inspired by Satan. God's irrevocable law is God never advocates sin. 
And Surah 7, verse 28, it reads, They commit a gross sin, then say, We found our parents doing this, and God has commanded us to do it. Say, God never advocates sin. Are you saying about God what you do not know? So if we believe that God ordered Abraham to kill his righteous son, um, this means that we don't understand God's qualities when God says he's most gracious, most merciful, that he is the definition of the word kind. This is not something that we would attribute And it's worth doing a whole podcast in itself, but one of the simple mechanisms that we know that God never advocated this was that when Satan was uh, testing, when Adam and Eve were tested in paradise, Satan was the individual who tested them. Same thing with the uh, example of Job. Satan was the one who tested Job. The mechanism that Satan serves is to test the, the all people, but the prophets and messengers as well. So when Abraham was being tested, Satan was the one who inspired him to think that God made him want to kill his son. This was an inspiration from Satan that Abraham mistakenly thought that it was coming from God, and God corrected him in this regards. So, if we believe in God, our actions should correspond to that. So, and our actions should correspond also to the word of God, because if we believe in God, we should also follow his word. So, do we need to do our salat? The answer is, if you don't know about Salat, if you don't know about the contact prayers, you're not responsible for them. But the second you know about them, the second that you realize that this is a uh, a meal for your soul, we would wholeheartedly do our uh, contact prayers. In um, 4237, the subtitle is Traits of the Believers. So these are the traits of the people who believe in God. It says, they avoid gross sins and vice, and when angered, they forgive. They respond to their Lord by observing the contact prayers Salat. Their affairs are decided after due consultation from among themselves, and from our provisions to them they give to charity. When gross injustice befalls them, they stand up for their rights. Although the just requital for an injustice is an equivalent retribution, those who pardon and maintain righteousness are rewarded by God. He does not love the unjust. Certainly, those who stand up for their rights when injustice befalls them are not committing any error. The wrong ones are those who treat the people unjustly and resort to aggression without provocation. These have incurred a painful retribution. Resorting to patience and forgiveness reflects a true strength of character. So these are some of the traits of the believers. So again, just to kind of recap, they perform their contact prayers. They resort to patience. Uh, they don't, uh, uh, they're never aggressors. Um, they never, uh, fall into injustice. These are the things that the, uh, the believers do. So if we want to say that we're believers, that we meet this first criteria, we have to follow this, uh, these commandments when we know about them. And same thing for zakat. You know, if you don't know about zakat, you're not responsible. Hopefully, at a minimum, you're giving two and a half percent of your income uh, to charity. Now, zakat is something that's very specific in the order you give it to. But again, it's one of these things that if you don't know about it, you can't say you're responsible. But the essence is once you know about it, once you know that God has uh, obligated us to give two and a half percent of any money that enters our uh, pocket to, uh, you know, our, our parents if they're in need, to a uh, family that's in need, to uh traveling alien that's in need, these individuals uh, in the set criteria, then um, we, we would wholeheartedly follow this. In 7156, it reads, requirement for attaining God's mercy, the importance of zakat, and decree for us righteousness in this world and in the hereafter. We have repented to you. He said, my retribution befalls whomever I will, but my mercy encompasses all things. However, I will specify for those who, one, lead a righteous life. Two, give the obligatory charity zakat. 
Three, believe in our revelations. And four, follow the messenger, the Gentile prophet Muhammad, whom they find written in the Torah and the Gospel. He exhorts them to be righteous, enjoins them from evil, allows for them all good food, and prohibits that which is bad, and unloads the burdens that he shackles imposed upon them. Those who believe in him, respect him, support him, and follow the light that came with him are the successful ones. So the second that we have this information that God is saying, look, in order to maintain God's mercy, one of the requirements is that we uh, give our zakat, uh, that we lead a righteous life, that we uh, believe in God's revelations, that we follow the messenger. These are things that we would wholeheartedly accept. If someone, for instance, says, yeah, I believe in God, and then reads this revelation, but chooses not to follow it, can they really say that they believe in God? And this goes for the entire Quran. So let's look at the next criteria. It says, believe in the last day. Now, how do you know if someone truly believes in the last day? There's three famous verses in the Quran that gives us a glimpse of what it means for someone to believe in Judgment Day, that believe at some point we're all going to be resurrected and judged for the deeds that we did in this life. In 6.1.12, the subtitle reads, Hadith and Sunnah Fabrications by the Prophet's Enemies. It says, We have permitted the enemies of every prophet, human and jinn devils, to inspire in each other fancy words in order to deceive. Had your Lord willed, they would not have done it. You shall disregard them and their fabrications. This is to let the minds of those who do not believe in the hereafter listen to such fabrications and accept them and exposes the real convictions. And the footnote reads, Quran provides criteria that tells us whether we truly believe in the hereafter or merely give it lip service. These important criteria stated here and in 1745-46 through 46 and 39-45. And it re- continues, as upholding any source besides the Quran rejects disbelief in the Quran. So when God tells us in the Quran in chapter 6, verse 19, in chapter 6, verse uh, uh, 114, that the Quran is complete, it's fully detailed. If we say, no, it's not, there's probably other sources we need to follow. This means that we do not truly believe in God, yet alone believe in uh, uh, the, uh, the hereafter. So let's look at some of these verses. 6114, it reads, Shall I seek other than God as a source of law when he's revealed to you this book, fully detailed? Those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord truthfully. You shall not harbor any doubt. And 619, it reads, Say, whose testimony is the greatest? Say, God's. He is a witness between me and you that this Quran has been inspired to me to preach it to you and whomever it reaches. Indeed, you bear witness that there are other gods beside God. Say, I do not testify as you do. There is only one God, and I disown your idolatry. Those to whom we have given the scripture recognize this as they recognize their own children. The one who lose their souls are those who do not believe. Who is more evil than one who lies about God or rejects his revelations? The transgressors never succeed. So if we believe, according to 619, that uh, uh, the Quran is not complete, fully detailed, and we rely on sources beside the Quran, like Hadith and Sunnah, this shows that we don't believe in the hereafter. In a continuation in uh, 6114 and 6115, uh, we read the following. Shall I seek other than God as a source of law when he has revealed to you this book fully detailed? Those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord truthfully. You shall not harbor any doubt. The word of your Lord is complete in truth and justice. Nothing shall abrogate his words. He is the hearer, the omniscient. If you obey the majority of people on earth, they will divert you from the path of God. They follow only conjecture. They only guess. 
So God is telling us, according to 6.1.12, that uh, criteria for determining if we believe in the hereafter or not is do we believe the Quran is complete, fully detailed, or do we look for a source beside the Quran uh, as a source of religious law? And think of it this way. If God is telling you, look, this is my word, this is uh, verbatim what I expect from the human population, and we choose to follow a source beside the Quran, then it's showing that we don't believe in God, yet alone the hereafter. And um, another verse that justifies if we believe in the hereafter or not, because the average person you ask, everyone's going to say, yeah, I believe in the hereafter, sure, you know, anyone who's religious. But the question is, how do you know if someone truly believes in the hereafter? Or again, it's just lip service. 39.45 gives us another uh, criteria. It says, when God alone is mentioned, the hearts of those who do not believe in the hereafter shrink with aversion. But when others are mentioned beside him, they become satisfied. So in this verse, um, God is telling us that those who believe in the hereafter are content with God alone. That if we want to put a name beside God, then what we're doing in essence is uh, we're, we're not satisfied with God alone. And if you think about it, this is clear in the first commandment. The first commandment in the Quran, according to 3.18, it says the, uh, the shahada, the declaration of faith of God, the angels, and the knowledgeable is ashaduan la la lillala. I bear witness there's no other God beside God. Now, if we want to put a name beside that, so a lot of people, they say, you know, this is a blasphemy. And for multiple reasons. For one, we're making a distinction among God's messengers. So when we say, for instance, when's the last time someone said, you know, Jonah Rasulullah or Isa Rasulullah, right? They're always making a distinction by putting Muhammad. Now they say Muhammad is the seal of the prophets. This is just, it's absurd. The thing is, God tells us specifically in the Quran, do not make any distinction among God's messengers. In 2.285, it says, uh, we make no distinction among God's messengers, and we hear and we obey. Meaning that when God gives us a commandment, don't make a distinction, we uh, automatically do that. In addition, when we're putting a name beside God, inevitably what we're doing is we're creating an idol. Even if we think that idol is a servant of God, by associating a name with God, we're inevitably uh, committing idol worship. And the only place in the Quran that you'll see Ashadawan Amarmad Rasulullah is in chapter 63 and verse 1, where it's entitled The Hypocrites. And it says, When the hypocrites come to you, they will bear witness you're a messenger of God. And God bears witness the hypocrites are liars. Why are they liars? It's because the, uh, no one, aside from God, Angel Gabriel, witnessed Prophet Muhammad turning to a prophet. Everyone else can say, yeah, Prophet Muhammad was a messenger of God. But to say, I bear witness he was a messenger of God is actually bearing false witness. And this is one of the uh, commandments that people are breaking when they make such a declaration. In the footnote of 39.45 says, despite the clear commandments in 3.18 that the first pillar of Islam is proclaiming, there's no other God beside God, the majority of Muslims insist upon adding the name of Muhammad. This greatest criterion alerts us that rejoicing in the adding the name of Muhammad or any other name exposes disbelief in the hereafter. And the following verse, so right now we know that if we believe the Quran is not complete, it's fully detailed. If we believe in sources uh, like Hadith and Sunnah, it shows that we don't believe in the hereafter. If we are not satisfied with the mention of God alone and we want to associate other entities, uh, be it Muhammad, Jesus, or any of the saints or martyrs next to God's name, this is also criteria that we don't believe in hereafter. And in 1745, it's another verse. It says, uh, when you read the Quran, we place between you and those who do not believe in the hereafter an invisible barrier. 
We place shields around their minds to prevent them from understanding it and deafness in their ears. And when you preach your Lord using the Quran alone, they run away with aversion. So this is the, the third criteria if we determine to determine if someone believes in the hereafter is that when they are preached the Quran alone, do they run away in aversion? Do they look for hadith and sunnah to justify a claim? And do they understand the Quran? Someone who's not sincere will never have access to the Quran. They can read the words, they can you know see the, everything that's there, but they will never be able to truly understand it because sincerity is uh, what's absolutely necessary in order to understand the Quran. And someone who's sincere is gonna believe in the hereafter. So these are the three criteria to determine if we believe in the hereafter or not. Uh, do we associate any names beside God? If we do, we don't believe in the hereafter. Do we associate any other uh, texts or religious uh, sources beside the Quran? If we do, then we don't believe in the hereafter. And are we satisfied with the Quran alone? Or do we look for other religious texts or uh, you know scriptures or whatever um, not authorized by God uh, for our religious salvation? This includes Hadith and Sunnah. So the third criteria of the three to determine if we have the minimum requirement is that we lead a righteous life. So what does it mean to read, uh, lead a righteous life? What is righteousness? In chapter 2, verse 177, we see what righteousness is. It says, righteous is not turning your face towards the east or the west. Righteous are those who believe in God, the last day, the angels, the scripture, uh, and the prophets, and they give the money cheerfully to the relatives, the orphans, and the needy, and the traveling alien, and the beggars, and to free the slaves. And they observe the contact purse salat, and give the obligatory charity zakat, and they keep their word whenever they make a promise. And they steadfastly persevere in the face of persecution, hardship, and war. These are the truthful. These are the righteous. So this kind of summarizes what does it mean to be righteous? That we believe in God, believe in the last day, the angels, the scriptures, the prophets. We give our money cheerfully to the relatives, the orphans, the needy, the traveling alien. We do our salat. We give our zakat. You know, these are the things that uh, are the criteria for the righteous, that we keep our word, that we're truthful. It continues in chapter 3, verse 92. It says, you cannot attain righteousness until you give to charity from the possessions you love. Whatever you give to charity, God is fully aware thereof. So if you want to maintain, you know, uh, reach righteousness, this minimum requirement, we have to be able to give to charity from the, the possessions we love, you know, our money, our time, uh, the things that we work for, our possessions. If we can give from the things we love to charity, this shows that we're part of the, uh, the righteous and we meet that requirement. Additional attributes can be found in chapter 3, verse 133 through 135. It reads, you should eagerly race towards forgiveness from your Lord and a paradise whose width encompasses the heavens and the earth. It awaits the righteous, and it gives the criteria, who give to charity during the good times as well as the bad times. They are suppressors of anger and partners of the people. God loves the charitable. If they fall in sin or wrong their souls, they remember God and ask forgiveness for their sins. And who forgives the sins except God? And they do not persist in sins knowingly. So this is more of the attributes of the, the righteous. So just to recap, they give to charity during both the good times and bad. It's not just when the economy is good, when you have a good paying job, you give to charity both times. Uh, they don't get angry. So if we get angry, we have to tell ourselves we're not acting righteous. Uh, we pardon people. We're forgiving. We're charitable. Uh, and when we do commit sins, we repent. We remember God and we repent. And we don't persist in sins knowingly. This is the criteria we need to fill if we want to be considered righteous. 
Uh, further verses, 2563 says, The worshipers of the most gracious are those who tread the earth gently. And when the ignorant speak to them, they only utter peace. In the privacy of the night, and the, they meditate on their Lord and fall prostrate. And they say, Our Lord, spare us the agony of hell. Its retribution is horrendous. It is the worst abode, the worst destiny. When they give, they are neither extravagant nor stingy. They give in moderation. They never implore beside God any other God, nor do they kill any soul. For God has made life sacred, except in the course of justice, nor do they commit adultery. Those who commit these offenses will have to pay. So again, more criteria for what it, what it means to be righteous. So it's more than just lip service, more than just saying, you know what, I'm righteous. Yeah, I'm, I, I do good things. I smile at people. I'm nice. You know, there's specific criteria that needs to be met. And it continues on. 2572 through 74, it says, They do not bear false witness when encounter vain talk, they ignore it. When reminded of their Lord's revelations, they never react to them as if they were deaf and blind. And they say, Our Lord, let our spouses and children be a source of joy for us and keep us in the forefront of the righteous. And one of the uh, the last verses that are more the criteria of what it means to be righteous can be found in chapter 2, uh, the very first uh, verses. It says, Who believe in the unseen, Observe the contact prayer salat, and from our provisions to them they give to charity. And they believe in what was revealed to you and what was revealed before you. And with regard to the hereafter, they are absolutely certain. These are guided by their Lord. These are the winners. So what's awesome about this is that we see these concepts of believing in God, believing in the last day, leading a righteous life. They're kind of interwoven. They're not independent of one another. Uh, by being righteous, you perform your contact prayers, you believe in God, uh, you give to charity. By believing the last day, you believe in God's word, you don't associate any idols by God. You believe in God's uh, Quran. And again, all this criteria, the minimum requirement, is going to be different for each individual based on the means they have, the knowledge they have, the resources they have. Uh, it says, you know, if you're uh, uh, weak, if you're uh, elderly, um, if you're a, a child, you know, you have different sets of responsibility uh, than other people. Someone who's wealthy, who's uh, uh, able, who has resources, who has uh, knowledge, they're going to be held to a higher status. And all this, it justifies a minimum requirement. But again, just like zakat, where one person's zakat, even though it's all two and a half percent, it's going to vary by how much income one makes. Righteousness, believing in God, believing in the hereafter is going to be uh, subjective to the individual because each individual is going to have a different criteria of expectations. Uh, just like you wouldn't hold a kindergartner to the same ca uh, level of expectations as someone who's a, a college grad or a PhD, um, it works in the same manner. But all this is the minimum requirement. Uh, and again, if you know, just to say we believe in something is meaningless. It's lip service. When we truly believe in something, our actions are going to correspond. If I say I believe in God and I find God's scripture in the Quran and I read God's word, I'll wholeheartedly accept everything it says and try to apply it to the best of my life. So the question is, you know, do you have to do your contact prayer, give your zakat uh, to meet the minimum requirement? And again, it depends. If you know about it, if you're aware, if you read the Quran, if you studied it, if you've seen the mathematical miracle, you believe in it, then if you truly believe, you'll act correspondingly. There's a story of a man, it's actually true, it's a, uh, I believe his name was the, the Great Boudin. He was a, uh, a magician, kind of a, a performer, and he was famous for his tightrope walking. And one day he stretched the tightrope across Niagara Falls. 
And uh, each day he would go and perform uh, stunts. You know, he'd walk across it. One day he set up a stove and cooked eggs and ate breakfast on the tightrope. And uh, one day he uh, had a wheelbarrow and he walked across and he asked the audience, who thinks I can walk across this uh, tightrope with a wheelbarrow? And everyone said, yeah, yeah, you know, because they've seen him do it a thousand times. So he walks across and gets uh, to the other side and says, okay, who, uh, who thinks I can do it again? And everyone says, yes, yes, yes. And he says, okay, who wants to get into the wheelbarrow? And no one wanted to get in. And the only person who did was an old man who ended up being his manager, got in the wheelbarrow, went across the tightrope, got back safe. And the thing is, everyone who was saying that they believe was only performing lip service. Reality is if you really believe, you'll get into the wheelbarrow. And same thing, when we believe in God, when we believe in God's word, when we believe in the Quran, we believe in the hereafter, we want to lead a righteous life, we'll have to get in the wheelbarrow. We have to act accordingly. We have to give to charity. We have to uh, do our contact prayers, uh, give our zakat, uh, suppress our anger, not commit adultery, um, treat people fairly, uh, never be unjust. These are the criteria. If we fail to uphold this knowingly, then we can say we don't meet this criteria. We don't meet the minimum requirement. But God is forgiver of sins. If we slip, we repent, we try again. And God, you know, with God's help, we can get there. So God willing, we can all meet this minimum requirement. We can all be uh, get God's uh, grace. And God guarantees that if we meet these requirements, uh, we'll never fear and never grieve. And that's for all of eternity. So God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, hit us up at Talk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.